This is Physician to Physician Plant-Based Nutrition. I'm Tracy Cushing, an emergency medicine physician. I'm also a mom, a wife, four-time Ironman, and I've been plant-based for 11 years. And I'm Eden English. I'm an internal medicine physician, a hiker, a ski boarder, a mom, and I've been vegan for the last five years. We're passionate about helping other doctors learn the science behind plant-based eating so they can help their patients develop sustainable, healthy eating habits. Each episode, we're breaking down the science behind plant-based eating and answering the questions we know most doctors have and most patients ask. Hi, Eden. How are you this afternoon? Hey, Tracy. How are you? I am doing well. Why don't you tell us what you had for dinner last night? Oh, gosh. Last night was fun because we had saved an extra native roast. So native food is it's kind of a fast food vegan chain out in the Denver area, but they make this wonderful roast for Thanksgiving. It's a Wellington and it's made with seitan and carrots and mushrooms. And then they wrap it in a phyllo dough. And we bought an extra one and saved it. And so we had it last night for dinner with mashed potatoes and green beans. It was exciting. My kids love it when we have a Thanksgiving in the middle of February. What about you guys? What'd you have for dinner last night? We actually had a native Wellington for Thanksgiving, so I can also attest to its wondrous deliciousness. Um, Last night was chickpea pasta with red sauce and the new uh, Tabitha Brown mushroom sausages that you can get at Target, and they are delicious. Um, So it was very simple, just a pasta with with red sauce, but some some good new ingredients. Um, But I'm very excited for you to tell us about our guest for today. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited today about this one. So we have Shivam Joshi, MD, who received his BS from Duke University and his MD from the University of Miami. He completed his residency at Jackson Memorial at University of Miami and his nephrology fellowship at University Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, he's been featured in New York Times, CNN, and the Wall Street Journal. He's an adjunct clinical assistant professor of medicine at NYU Grossman School of Medicine and works at the Orlando Veteran Affairs Medical Center as a full-time nephrologist. He has a research interest in plant-based diets and kidney disease and has authored and co-authored over 50 scientific articles. He speaks frequently on this subject to national and international audiences and is the youngest nephrologist to receive the highest award in renal nutrition, the National Kidney Foundation's Joel D. Koppel Award. But we are so excited to have you today. Dr. Josie, why don't you tell us what you had for dinner last night? Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. And now I've, my mind is thinking about this Wellington and uh, native foods that I don't know about. And I checked their website while you're introducing me. We don't have it here in Florida, uh, but it sounds very exciting. It may be a reason to come out to, to wherever they're located. I had roti, so I'm Indian by background. So roti is that flattens, uh, it's almost like a pita, but a little bit flatter type of bread. Um, it's not raised, uh, made out of uh, flour. And uh, we had that with chana, so chickpeas, and then black chickpeas, uh, black chana. And I threw in some soy curls with it just to give it a little bit more protein, not to feed into the protein deficiency myth, but um, I do like uh, eating them. Uh, it, it gives like a chicken-like flavor. I used to eat chicken back in the day, so uh, so it was a nice, uh, nice addition. Tell us a bit more about you. Tell us a little bit about your vegan story. What made you decide to go plant-based to begin with? Yeah, so I was on and off vegetarian for a long time. Uh, most Indians are vegetarian. I, maybe not most, but a good proportion of them are because of religious and cultural backgrounds. And as Indians uh, move further away from India, some of this gets lost. I was struggling with this growing up. I was on and off veg- uh, vegetarian. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I would eat meat at sometimes. And then I went through med school 
and I was not a vegetarian during that time, but I read the China study. Someone, my friend, who's now a neurosurgeon, told me about the China study, and he gave me the book, and I read it, and then, of course, I gave it to other people because it really had a strong impression on me. I know now uh, some of the data is a little outdated uh, for a China study, but overall, it's still a pretty good book, and it you know has a lot of important messages. And that set me on this path about uh, just understanding where food comes from and how it affects health, not only my health, but I was, you know, at that point I had graduated med school and the, the health of my future patients. And that uh, continued to grow that knowledge and also desire for more knowledge. And that uh, followed me as I went uh, through my training and I completed a fellowship and I thought I was going to be a transplant nephrologist. It's uh, very exciting. A lot of my early research was in that, uh, but I actually decided to focus more on preventing kidney disease than treating it after the fact. So uh, like, I consider myself a preventive nephrologist. There is no formal training for it. You kind of just teach yourself and try and prevent kidney disease. That is wonderful. And I love talking about prevention. We've been talking about that a lot too, and how preventing disease is just a lot easier than the things we have to do to, to treat it or even diagnosing it early. So we should really all be focusing a little bit more there. And I love that you do. Did you get any training during your fellowship at all about either preventative renal medicine or about detailed sort of nutrition for renal disease? Or was that something that because you were aware of it, you kind of sought out the information on your own? We got no training on this. Uh, the only training that we got was informally. What is a uh, uh, renal diet and what foods are high in phosphorus and what are potentially high in potassium and things like that. But I don't think we ever had a lecture on it. And actually, the only lecture that was given during my fellowship was one given by me because I looked into it and uh, presented it back to our group. And that uh, ultimately spawned my career as being the expert uh, or go-to expert in plant-based diets and kidney disease which is uh, a title that I enjoy and I enjoy um, talking about it and speaking about it, obviously. And that's probably why I am here. <laughs> Indeed, it is. I, I keep asking our guests, no matter their specialty, if they got any training in either nutrition generally or plant-based nutrition specifically. And it's it's been a resounding no uh, so far. So I'm, I'm ever hopeful that someday someone will tell me that they received training. But um, yeah, so we're not nephrologists. Um, talk to us about food and the kidney and the relationship between the two and why diet is so important for folks with, to either prevent renal disease or for folks with renal disease. Yeah, so food is important for all diseases, for all health. And the for the same reasons it is for all health, it is the same for uh, kidney. Uh, the food that you eat has a big role in uh, your risk of developing kidney disease or a, a risk of developing the causes of kidney disease. The big causes of kidney disease are diabetes being number one, type two diabetes, that is uh, hypertension being number two, and then number, uh, obesity is on the rise. Uh, and that's starting to emerge as a recognized uh, cause of kidney disease. And eating healthy, uh, helps prevent the causes of kidney disease. It can help uh, treat kidney disease for those who have kidney disease, and it can reduce the complications of kidney disease. So it's really important, and that gets lost in 
modern healthcare because there's not really a way to reimburse for that. And it does take time to teach patients. For providers that are not nephrologists, you probably are aware of the renal diet or have heard of it or prescribed it or talked to a patient about it. That diet is changing. And um, I'm really glad and honored to be a part of it and have played a small role in putting plants into the renal diet of the 21st century. Do we have anywhere where that's going to be published or available or easily referenceable for clinicians that are trying to get to the new guidelines for renal diets? They they have not made it into the guidelines quite yet, uh, but the the most recent guidelines that came out were not anti-plant. They were starting to be plant curious, I would say. Um, they were including plants and things, and then they were acknowledging areas where they needed more research. And they actually supported the use of plants for other things like metabolic acidosis and the Mediterranean diet for cholesterol reduction and other things. So those are the KDGO uh, recent dietary guidelines. As far as the new uh, renal diet that I uh, co-wrote with Dr. Cam Kalantar Zadeh, who is now um, at the UCLA Lundquist Institute, and that paper I can share with you to put in the notes for this uh, this podcast, and uh, that has a good uh, diagram of what the the new uh, real diet is called the Plato diet, plant PLA dominant DO diet. I really liked a lot of your articles, and it, one of them, the plant based diet and prevention and management of of chronic kidney disease, talked a lot about sort of that the the high potassium and the high phosphorus and how. Eating a lot of plants doesn't actually affect your potassium levels the way it had been theorized in the past, but never shown. So, and I love that they're called F and V's throughout that paper, talking about getting more F and V's or fruits and vegetables was, that was fun for me. Um, so how can you, if, if all these fruits and F and V's have tons of potassium, can you help explain to our audience why that wouldn't raise your potassium or what some of the mechanisms there might be? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm glad that people read that paper like yourself. Um, and, uh, and thank you for saying those kind words. That paper was a labor of love. And we're really um, glad to have written that paper because that kind of summarizes a lot of these overarching points for plant-based diets and kidneys. There used to be a long list of reasons that why we wouldn't even consider plant foods for uh, patients with kidney disease. And one of those reasons was potassium. And potassium is found in plant foods, F and Bs. Uh, there is recent research to suggest that not all that potassium gets absorbed. So uh, we're going down to the basic components of cells, ninth grade biology. Plant cells have cell walls and animal cells do not have cell walls. So people think that those cell walls in plants prevent the potassium from being absorbed in humans because it's just harder to digest. And when you look at potassium recovery studies, recovery studies uh, of people eating diets, uh, and then they collect the potassium, uh, they compare how much potassium is excreted to how much was actually ingested. And what you can see is that around 60%, 60 to 70% of potassium is absorbed uh, from the diet in those that are eating a predominantly plant-based diet. That number is actually higher for those who are eating an omnivorous diet that it goes up to 90%. And we published a paper on that uh, recently, and we have another paper coming out on that uh, in the near future, building off other people's research and kind of summarizing and saying, you know, all that potassium in foods is not really uh, going to be absorbed. 
I love that. So what I what what I'm hearing you saying is that when my patients come in and they're on dialysis, it's still okay to tell them to eat as much fruit as they want to. They they can, they should eat fruits and vegetables. So there are caveats. So I I don't I don't give them as uh, I don't give them a blank check to that effect. But I do talk to them and see what they like and what they want to eat. There are some pitfalls. Uh, some fruits and vegetables uh, are higher in potassium than others, and especially if the form that they eat them uh, can be problematic. But in general, yeah, some people can get away with that. Uh, some people might find problems, especially if they uh drinking juice, for example. So juice is a no-no um, for anyone with kidney problems, especially advanced kidney problems. You know, say a glass of orange juice, I'm here in Florida, so it's a good example. A uh, glass of orange juice has about two medium oranges in it, and people will drink a glass or two of orange juice for breakfast or throughout the day. And that, But no one ever eats two oranges in a sitting or two to four oranges in a sitting or more. Um, but people will do that with orange juice. And that orange juice has potassium, and you can get a lot of potassium in a short period of time. So I don't recommend some uh, of these things like juices, sauces, dried fruit. Um, those are things to to be mindful of. But in general, I tell people that if you really like bananas, you can go back to eating bananas. You should eat salads. You know, what will monitor you just in case something does happen or something is lost in translation. And then, uh, but yeah, it is it is um, a turnaround from what it was before. Does eating an orange in its raw form with the fiber decrease the amount of potassium you absorb because the cell walls are still intact? Or is that why juice is is worse? Or do you tell people to avoid oranges altogether? No, I, I don't tell people to avoid oranges altogether. I, I let them eat oranges. I let them eat apples. It's just that when you take the oranges and apples and turn them into juice, you're concentrating the potassium in all those oranges and apples into one easily digestible way of uh, intake. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, it, you're turning it into a liquid, so it's uh, more absorbable. There's a higher amount of potassium. It's the same way that we don't really recommend juice for pa- diabetics. Rather, you eat the whole fruit because you're getting the fiber. And also with juice, the fiber is taken out. So the fiber is very important. It helps increase bowel movements, uh, uh, frequency, and the size of the bowel movements. And that leads to more potassium excretion. So there are other factors in play besides the, the cell walls. So uh, those other things include the fiber. Fiber is important for getting rid of uh, potassium. Uh, it's been shown in a number of studies that the more fiber you eat, the more potassium you excrete in your bowel movement, especially in patients with kidney disease. The other thing is alkali. Alkali is found, that's what it's based, going back to ninth grade chemistry now. Uh, acids and base, so people have heard of alkaline water. What's better than alkaline water is actually alkaline food. And alkaline food is, no surprise, fruits and vegetables, F and Bs. And those things help uh, keep your potassium level down by moving potassium out of the bloodstream and into the cells. And then also the improvements in insulin resistance uh, also contribute to a lowering of potassium when you eat these healthy foods, these healthy fiber-rich foods. Tend to encourage people to eat whole fruit. So it sounds like that's pretty safe because I juice is never on my list. I don't think juice has that many health benefits. I'm always big for the... Whole fruit, the dried fruit caught me a little off guard. And is that the same thing? Like the fiber's gone because they dry the fruit and it's a little bit more concentrated so people eat a lot? Yeah, exactly. So uh, grapes are a good example. Probably in a sitting, I might have 10 or 20 grapes. Uh, but if you eat a box of raisins, and I have eaten a box of raisins, there could be up to 110 dried grapes in a box of raisins. And so you can see that you're getting a whole magnitude more 
grapes and each of those grapes has a little bit of potassium and then you consume it. And even though there's the issue of the cell wall and the fiber and the alkali and you know, all that stuff, you're still getting maybe 66% of all that potassium. So if you increase that original amount of potassium in your diet, in your diet 66% of a large amount of potassium is still a large amount of potassium. So that, that's where people can run into some trouble. What I hear a lot is that they've been told that they can't eat some of their favorite foods. And for, for each patient, it's a different one. Uh, for some, it's mangoes, some it's uh, bananas or apples. And then when I see them, I tell them that they can't eat these foods and they shouldn't be eating the things that they have been, that they have been eating instead, like a ham and cheese sandwich or going to McDonald's or you know all this fast food or processed food. That's where they get into trouble and that's what leads to the worsening of their diabetes or high blood pressure or obesity. And it's, it's terrible because we are depriving patients of the one thing that they can do or, one, or a few things that they can do on their own to improve their health. And then they're stuck in this vicious cycle where we're just prescribing more meds at higher doses more frequently. While we're on the subject of nutrients, you've already mentioned phosphorus, but can you just tell us a little bit more? Because I've heard the same thing, like, and ph phosphorus is more in animal products than in plants. So why would patients be told to avoid plants for the phosphorus? It's the same, it's the same thing. The, it's the exact same concepts. The phosphorus is thought to be more in plants, but it's less bioavailable in plants. So it's, it's, just, it's almost the same paradox again. The phosphorus content may be lower in some animal foods, although some animal foods do have a sizable amount of phosphorus. The bioavailability is more. Uh, so, that, so that is the issue. So we used to worry about beans and phosphorus. Fruits and vegetables do contain phosphorus, but uh, they uh, do not contain phytate, but they, their phosphorus content tends to be on the lower end, so they tend to be less problematic. Uh, so it's really about the other plant foods, uh, like grains and things like that. So that uh, is the same principle, it's a bioavailability. And there's a rule of thirds, and the rule of thirds says one third uh, phosphorus is bioavailable from plants. So the plant foods, about one third of that phosphorus is bioavailable or absorbable. Two thirds is uh, bioavailable in uh, animal-based foods, and then three thirds in your processed foods. And the classic example is your dark sodas. So I, and I thought the papers were interesting and in not just the benefits of F and Vs, but also the sort of active correlation between animal protein intake, increased CKD risk, I think, you know, increased hypertension, a little less surprised by, um, but that, um, and worsen sort of uremic um, byproducts and all that sort of thing. So not only was eating fruits and vegetables better, but eating animal products actually increased your risk of a fair number of different renal problems. Yeah, it just it wasn't just one thing that it affected. And that's that's the, the interesting part. And this is why uh, it makes sense to uh, eat healthier, to eat more whole food, plant-based, more unprocessed, uh, because it, it has a large number of benefits, metabolic acidosis, blood pressure, insulin resistance, weight, phosphorus control, uh, and the list goes on and on. What about protein? Don't you worry that if you tell people to eat plants, they won't get enough protein to protect their kidneys? So this is the, the interesting part about protein and kidney disease is that it's a really fine balance. You want to make sure you're getting enough protein. Everyone wants to make sure they're getting enough protein because no one wants to be protein deficient. But the interesting part is that for people with kidney disease, it is thought 
And I think most people believe, and the reason that I say most people, because it's like many things in science, uh, things are vigorously debated. And uh, again, most people believe that the protein amount that you eat can affect how fast your kidney function declines or how healthy your kidneys are. That is if you have kidney disease. If you don't have kidney disease, most people believe that your kidneys will be okay. But if you have kidney disease, and it is in the guidelines, that you should limit your protein intake to about 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kilogram per day, uh, depending on not whether or not you have diabetes. The benefit of eating plant protein is that, yes, people who eat plant protein do generally consume less protein than the average omnivore. But that's because the average omnivore is eating more protein than what is the recommended amount, even by regular standards. So you, the other way to look at it is that people on an average American diet are actually eating more protein than they need. So they're in protein excess territory, probably because of our emphasis on protein or obsession with it. By eating a plant-based diet, you can actually bring yourself back down to the normal range. And I think that is easier for people to then get down to the range recommended for patients with kidney disease, the 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kilogram per day. And we have talked a lot about on the podcast about protein in general, and I think your paper quoted it too, that most vegans get somewhere in the 0.7 to 0.9 um, milligram per kilograms uh, per day of protein on a standard plant-based diet. So we should be fairly close to that range, right? That's targeted for kidney disease. Right, exactly. And you did mention that if you're not having kidney disease, most people think it's safe to eat a high-protein diet for the kidneys. Is that true? It doesn't damage your kidneys to eat super high-protein, or is there evidence that it might be not safe to eat high levels? There are some studies that suggest that eating a high-protein diet could increase your risk of, of having kidney disease um, if, you don't, or if you don't have kidney disease already. But when you look at most studies, most studies actually show a degree of safety and comfort um, suggesting that if you have healthy kidneys and don't have kidney problems, then you're probably okay. Your kidneys are able to handle this extra workload with the protein. The problem is, is if you do have kidney problems. So if you're someone that is thinking about a high protein diet or is on a high protein diet, you may want to have blood and urine testing to make sure you don't have kidney problems before embarking on this because if you do, you could possibly uh, make a, a bad situation worse. So I see a lot of patients in the emergency department with kidney stones, and patients always ask me, well, if stones are made out of calcium, should I follow a low-calcium diet, or what are sources of calcium? So I thought that paper on, on plant-based milks and kidney stones was absolutely fascinating um, and was really, really interesting. Yeah, that that paper has gotten a lot of attention, and I was uh, it was an honor to be a part of it with NYU urology team. That paper looked at the various micronutrient profiles of plant milks, uh, that, which had not really been studied. Um, so it looked at the calcium content, sodium content, potassium content, and the oxalate content. And oxalate is important to uh, risk factor for stones. So what was interesting and it's helpful to think about is that the, the nut-based milks had more oxalate. And that makes sense because nuts tend to have more oxalate. So that's going to be your almond-based milks, your cashew-based milks, your hazelnut-based milks. They have uh, more oxalate. 
Soy has probably amount of oxalate. It was fourth on the list in terms of the most oxalate content. But uh, the if you really, you know, if you're someone that has a problem with too much oxalate and that's been causing stones, one way to avoid this problem entirely is to drink milks that are entirely devoid of oxalate or very low in oxalate. So that would be hemp milk, oat milk, macadamia milk, uh, rice milk uh, are all low in oxalate. If you're looking for a milk that uh, compares well with dairy milk. Oat milk is a good option. Uh, the other good options are uh, macadamia, rice, and soy. I do love oat milk. Also, soy is nice, but mostly we've been using oats, so I'm glad to hear that that's fine, even though I don't have kidney disease. I, I thought that was fascinating, too, because I get the same kind of questions. What should we avoid with kidney stones? So I really did love that paper, too. In terms of the link between animal protein intake and other risks, are there, we know that there are risks, but what is the actual risk of, say, for example, hypertension or CKD um, per serving of animal product? Yeah, so it varies by, uh, it varies by the study. But what we do know is that each serving of animal foods does increase the risk of developing hypertension uh, it increases blood pressure, and the same thing with CKD. Going back to yeah, Eden's point, yeah, yes, uh, the Singapore Chinese Health Study did uh, note a really strong association between red meat and the risk of kidney failure. That paper showed that there was a dose-dependent uh, risk, meaning that the more red meat folks ate, uh, the higher uh, their risk of developing ESRD. And those in the highest quartile int uh, intake of red meat had a 40% higher risk of developing kidney failure. And then they did this interesting thing where they did a substitution analysis where they replaced one serving of red meat per day with soy and legumes. And this was associated with a 50% reduction in risk of kidney failure. So what that means is that replace taking one serving of red meat of steak uh, or whatnot and replacing that with soy, tofu, or beans, this was associated with a risk, or a reduction in risk of about 50%. Some caveats, this is not a uh, randomized controlled trial, and this was uh, a relative reduction in risk. Uh, so those are important things to consider, uh, but still impressive for you know, a modest change in diet. I love it. And, and I love that you talk about diet as a zero-sum game. So if we can include more whole grains and legumes, we're going to squeeze out the animal stuff that we shouldn't be eating anyway. And so it, it is about replacing here, like you're replacing the meat with the whole grains, but you can also just increase the whole grains and legumes and hope to squeeze out stuff um, to try to get more of the stuff that you need because it's fiber is so huge. You've mentioned that several times when we eat these F and Vs, and now I want to call like whole grains and legumes Gs and Ls or something, but when you eat the F and Vs and the, the grains and legumes, you get so much more fiber that it helps keep everything scrubbed, including the potassium and the phosphorus. An animal is the opposite because the animal has zero fiber, so it doesn't push anything through and it doesn't help with that scrub. Right, exactly. And uh, I, I like the idea of crowding out the plate. Uh, I learned this concept from my amazing mentor at NYU Belby, Dr. Michelle McMacken. And uh, the, kind of, the idea is that it may be hard for people to think that they can switch to a plant-based diet or make this huge change. But if you start, if you frame it in a way that you're just going to include more healthy foods as opposed to giving up other things, this automatically happens because it is 
a zero-sum game. At the end of the day, you can only eat so much. So by including something, you have to, at some point, give up something else. I found that to be really helpful for patients. I think nephrologists are really interested in this, and I think they've been waiting for this for a long time. Um, What I've found is that patients sometimes uh, outpace their nephrologists in learning this information. So sometimes I get emails from patients saying, my nephrologist told me that I have to do this and they're recommending the old renal diet and they won't let me eat bananas or apples or something. And what I say in that situation is to uh, give them one of these papers or something so that they can have an opportunity to learn and then adjust their practice uh, once they have this information because they're still operating on information that was taught to them or that they picked up uh, as they went through their training. And this is new information, and you know, as we mentioned earlier, it hasn't made it into the guidelines. This is the cutting edge of change, and it's only been within a couple of years that we've published that uh, paper, Rethinking the Renal Diet. So for, for nephrologists, if anyone interested, they're welcome to contact me and email me at afternoonrounds at gmail.com, and I'm happy to uh, send them my paper. Patients as well, I'm happy to share my information. You can share with your nephrologist and discuss it. But uh, uh, I, uh, I'm hap- happy to answer any questions, and uh, it's, it's great to hear back from some of these patients and nephrologists about their success stories and how much has changed their life and the quality of life, and uh, it's, it's really uh, uh, heartwarming and fulfilling. I love it when patients do have good successes with this, too. It is so rewarding. Um, Tell us about your plant program at In My Bellevue. I uh, recently relocated to the Orlando VA, but prior to this, I was at NYU Bellevue. I was faculty, still imagine faculty at NYU. And I had the honor and privilege of working at Bellevue, the storied uh, uh, public hospital in New York City, the oldest public hospital in the country. I was a part of the plant clinic. Uh, at Bellevue, Plant-Based Lifestyle Medicine Clinic, uh, which was fearlessly led uh, by my mentor, Dr. Michelle McMacken. The uh, clinic is uh, accepting patients who have conditions related to uh, lifestyle and discretion. It's uh, really a first-of-its-kind clinic that operates in a primary care setting, and it's accessible to patients who need it most. These are patients who uh, suffer the most from uh, social determinants of health, uh, patients who are underinsured, uh, who have uh, limited access to healthcare? Everyday people in society, firefighters, police officers, teachers, uh, nurses. We we've seen everyone. It's a great program that does not discriminate. It's not entirely free. There are some copays involved, but it is a unique program because this does not really exist uh, in other areas. And for anyone living in the New York City area, it's a great program to check out. You can Google it: Plant Based Lifestyle Medicine Program at Bellevue. I'm sure it'll be the first hit that pops up. And there is a hotline that folks can call to get on the list. As an NYU alum, uh, NYU Med alum, I just want to say that tickles my heart and makes me so proud. Um, And also how lucky you guys are to have the support of your mayor, um, who had, I'm sure, something to do with helping to get this expanded into the public hospitals in New York. So I think we would love to bring something like that to Colorado and, um, you know, maybe, maybe we can get together a network of folks and start opening clinics like this all over the country. Yeah, that, that would be great. We can, we can open a location in Colorado, but I don't think that would fit within the New York City health and hospital paradigm. <laughs> it has been such a pleasure to have you today. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about all things plant-based and nephrology. Your work is so impressive. So please, please keep it up and let us know if there's anything we can ever do to assist in your efforts 
to further the plant-based message. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure in being here. I really enjoyed talking with all of you and have a, have a great dinner. This is Tracy and Eden signing off. Less meat means less disease. Go have a happy plant-based day. <laughs>